The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 191 Approaching Jerusalem News of Jesus' teachings and his miracles spread throughout Judea. He healed ten lepers. He taught about what the kingdom of God truly was, and he taught people how to pray. To illustrate the way to break through to God in prayer, Jesus told a parable about a Pharisee and a publican. The Pharisee thanked God that he was not like criminals or other people he looked down on, and pointed out to God that he fasted often and tithed on everything he owned. The publican, however, prayed in a heartfelt, humble way, admitting his sins. Jesus said, I tell you, this publican went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This was just one of Jesus' many biblical teachings that amazed the people who heard him. Crowds of people continued to follow him and his disciples. Most of the people in these crowds were parents, and what parents want, perhaps more than anything else, is for their children to be blessed. One day, fathers and mothers brought young children to Jesus, hoping that he would touch them and bless them. Realizing how much of Jesus' time it would take, the disciples tried to discourage the parents from approaching Jesus and asking him to bless their children. They reasoned that it would take away too much time from his work of preaching and healing. When Jesus saw his disciples turning away parents and their children, Leading them back to the crowd, he became upset. Allow the little children to come to me, and do not forbid them, he told his disciples firmly. Then he said something surprising. For of such is the kingdom of God. What did the great, glorious kingdom of God have to do with children? These little children barely knew why they were there. They were too young to understand the things Jesus was teaching. So what did he mean? His statement confused his disciples and those in the crowd. Jesus was telling them they must have the attitude of a little child to enter the kingdom of God. Childlike trust, humility, and teachability. Little children are humble. They don't think they already know what is best. They listen. They obey. Because they are humble. They learn, and because they learn, their parents and other good teachers can lead them in the right way. Children who are not humble cannot be taught and therefore cannot learn the right way. Adults and even children often believe they can figure out for themselves the right way. But Jesus was teaching the disciples and the millions who would later read his words in the Bible that even adults are still children of God 
and should behave like humble children so that he can teach them. Jesus was also teaching the disciples the importance of reaching future generations. The disciples had not considered how important it was to be humble toward God. So humble that you are like a little child. They quickly sought out the parents and children they had reprimanded and brought them back through the crowd to the front. Jesus took the children up in his arms, talked to them a little bit, and sincerely asked God to bless them. Then he put them down or handed them back to their parents and picked up more children. In one way, his preaching that day had come to a halt. In another way, he was preaching very powerfully by demonstrating how important children are to God and what the attitudes will be like of those who enter his kingdom. Sometime later, Jesus and his disciples were walking down the road on their way to the next town. As they traveled, the young man ran up to them. He was polite, respectful, and well-dressed. It was easy to see that he was successful. But the young man knew there was more to life. He wanted to be successful spiritually. Good master. The young man addressed Jesus. What good thing can I do to receive eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. There is none good but God. Jesus had never sinned. He taught good lessons and he performed good miracles. But he knew that the source of his good works was God the Father. He knew that this man and his disciples needed to focus more on God the Father. They needed to understand that he taught only what God told him to teach, and he relied on God to do the things he did. If you want to have eternal life, keep the commandments. Which commandments? The young man responded. He said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. As the young man had guessed, Jesus was talking about laws established by God, the Ten Commandments. But obeying the Ten Commandments seemed easy, or at least simple. I have kept all of these commandments since I was a child. The young man said, What else do I need to do? Jesus looked in his eyes. He knew the young man had a serious sin that he was too self-righteous to recognize. If you want to become perfectly righteous, Jesus told him, Go and sell what you have. Donate your money to the poor and you will receive spiritual treasure instead. And come and follow me. Jesus had just pinpointed a sin this young man wasn't acknowledging. Idolatry, putting riches before God. The young man looked at Jesus. They both knew that he had gotten right to the heart of what he needed to do in order to repent before God. But the young man loved those possessions. The young man looked away from Jesus' eyes, then back one more time. He wanted to obey him, but he wanted to keep his possessions. After another moment, he thanked Jesus for the advice, politely excused himself and began walking slowly home. He 
knew Jesus had helped him see the thing he most needed to overcome, covetousness. But giving up his possessions was too hard, and he put them ahead of following Jesus. The disciples were disappointed and amazed that this seemingly fervent rich young man was unable to overcome his love of money. Jesus was disappointed. He told his disciples, I tell you, it is extremely difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Almost all rich people suffer the same struggle against sin. God does not command all of his children to sell everything they own. He blessed Abraham and other servants with great physical abundance, but he knows that human beings can devote so much time and focus to owning and pursuing possessions that they reject God and his law. As the men continued on their journey, Peter spoke up. He was the leader among the disciples, and he often said things bluntly. We have given up everything and followed you, he told Jesus. What will we receive as a result? Peter was not necessarily asking in a selfish way. He and the other eleven disciples had severely interrupted their lives, their jobs, and their relationships to devote themselves to follow Jesus, serve Him, and live their lives the way He said. Jesus agreed that they had sacrificed a lot to follow Him. When this world is renewed, and the Son of Man is glorified in ruling from His throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. God's children receive blessings from God, but we also receive hardships. We have to give up things that we want and resist doing things we want to do. We must be willing to do this for our entire lives, with no big payoff until after we are resurrected in God's kingdom. But at that point, the spiritual treasure blessings and rewards will be far more than we can imagine. Everyone that has forsaken houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. God does offer His children rewards to motivate us. We must willingly believe, obey, and love our Father. He has already given us immense blessings just by creating us, protecting us, and teaching us the truth about his plan. But as a father, he wants to give us hundreds of times more friendships, possessions, happiness, and joy than we can possibly imagine. Many of those blessings will come even before we are transformed into spirit beings but even more numerous and more awesome blessings will come in the kingdom of God. Jesus and his disciples headed toward Jerusalem. The spring holy days of AD 31 would soon begin. Speaking in a serious tone, Jesus turned the conversation to something he had already told them twice before, but they still did not really understand. We are heading toward Jerusalem. The Son of Man 
will be betrayed and arrested by the chief priests and the scribes, and they will sentence him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, scourge, and crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. The Son of Man was Jesus. The Pharisees and other religious leaders had continually persecuted him and were actively trying to kill him. He knew they were about to succeed. Being in Judea made the disciples nervous. They knew that the Jewish leaders wanted to eliminate Jesus. They were afraid for him and for themselves. But so far they had been protected. Now Jesus was saying that protection would end and he would be taken, tortured, and murdered. He also said God would resurrect him from the dead, but they did not really understand what was about to happen. As the men continued along, the mother of the disciples James and John came to Jesus and worshipped him. She believed he was the Son of God and that he would establish the kingdom of God. She asked him to give James and John the two highest positions under him in the kingdom. This was another opportunity for Jesus to teach the disciples what following him really meant, what the kingdom of God was really like, what it means to be a godly leader. You don't realize what you are asking. He said, turning to James and John, he asked, Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They answered, We are able. They knew they had to sacrifice and suffer to follow their master, but they did not understand that he was talking about terribly bitter suffering and death. Jesus thought for a moment. Indeed, you will drink of that cup and undergo that baptism, he said. But to give those positions of authority in God's kingdom is not up to me, but up to my Father. When the other disciples understood what James and John and their mother had been talking about with Jesus, they became angry. They had not been so bold as to directly ask for the most important offices in the kingdom. They thought that James and John and their mother were arrogant and selfish to ask for such a thing. As an argument began to unfold, Jesus quieted the men down and called them over to him. They were used to how the government of the Roman Empire worked, which had many forms of abuse, injustice, corruption. Jesus needed to teach the disciples how God's government was different. You know that the princes of the Gentiles rule over people selfishly, he said, but you may not use your authority in that way. If one of you wants to become great in God's government, he must serve others. And if one of you wants to be the greatest of all, he must enslave himself to others. This was an amazing way to describe and summarize a completely different type of government. Human governments add one selfish, competitive leader after another until the government becomes so huge and takes so much that it collapses under its own weight. 
then it is replaced by another government filled with selfish, competitive leaders. God's government is composed of childlike, hard-working, humble servant leaders. The more they serve, the more authority they receive. The ultimate authorities, God the Father and Jesus Christ, give and serve the most of all. Everyone under the government benefits. Be like the Son of Man, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to sacrifice his life to save many. The ultimate example of servant leadership was about to be given. God the Father was about to sacrifice Jesus Christ, allowing him to be tortured and killed, so that all human beings under God's government could be healed and have the opportunity to receive the ultimate benefit, being saved from their sins, turning to God's way of life, and living forever. In a couple of weeks, the Jews would be keeping the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus and his disciples knew that the Jewish leaders were searching for him and looking for an opportunity to kill him. It would have been easy for Jesus to reason that the wisest course of action would be to leave Judea or at least stay out of sight. But because of his close relationship with and his obedience to his father, through prayer and studying the scriptures. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. He knew his time was short, and he was urgent to teach and heal as many as possible. While walking with his disciples near Jericho, Jesus encountered blind men who cried out to him for healing. They believed that Jesus was the son of David and that God was using him to heal people. Jesus heard them and healed them. The presence of these men, who could now see, and the news of this dramatic healing electrified the crowds and enraged the Jewish leaders even more. Jesus had now been preaching, healing, and performing other miracles for almost three and a half years. He had preached in cities and towns and along highways in Galilee, Decapolis, Perea, Samaria, Caesarea Philippi, Tyre and Sidon, and Judea, including Jerusalem. His work was leading him back to Jerusalem one final time. Jesus had changed water into wine, calmed a storm, walked on water, fed thousands of people miraculously, forced demons out of people. He had healed swelling, bleeding, blindness, deafness, paralysis, leprosy, and other diseases. He had resurrected people from the dead. Many of these miracles were witnessed by dozens or hundreds of people, like the most recent healing of the blind man. Jesus had also taught amazing things from the scriptures, teachings that were powerful, true and electrifying, and starkly different from what the Pharisees, Sadducees, 
another religious leader's taught. His life matched the many scriptures that prophesied of a savior or messiah to come. He was Jewish. He was preceded by someone who was like Elijah. He was a descendant of King David. He was born in Bethlehem. His mother was a virgin. He had fled too and returned from Egypt. His ministry began in Galilee. He preached in parables. He preached good news to the poor. He preached to Jews and to non-Jews. He was rejected by the leaders of the land. He performed miracles, and he had never committed a single sin against God's law. No one fully understood who Jesus was, where he received his power, or just how many prophecies he fulfilled. But many people understood enough to believe that he was the prophesied savior. The Jews thought the savior would become their king and save them from the Romans in their lifetimes. They did not understand that the savior would come twice. The first time, he would sacrifice his life to pay for the sins of all human beings. The second time, he would miraculously and powerfully take over the government of the earth. Jesus was the Christ. He was the Savior, the Messiah. He was the Son of God. But he was not going to become king in their lifetimes. He would, however, sacrifice his life for their sins. And that sacrifice would happen very soon. One day, Jesus was traveling through Jericho. A large crowd followed him, including community leaders, wealthy businessmen, people with religious questions, and many other curious people. As Jesus walked through the city gate, a cry emerged over the noise of the crowd. Master, heal me! The people continued walking. Some on the edges of the crowd noticed that the request came from two men who were often there at the gate begging. They were blind. Some told the men to be quiet so they could hear what Jesus was saying. But the men ignored them and cried out even louder to Jesus. Have mercy on us, O Lord, you son of David. Mercy on us, O Lord, you son of David. Jesus stopped asked the men what they wanted. One of the men, Bartimaeus, rapidly rose to his feet, cast off his outer robe, and made his way to Jesus. Lord, he answered, raising his face toward Jesus. Grant that we might be able to see. Jesus discerned their earnest belief that he would heal them. Go your way, Jesus said, touching their eyes. Your faith has made you whole. Immediately, both men could see crowd was amazed, and the men greatly rejoiced. When Jesus continued on his journey, the men followed him, telling as many people as they could what he had done for them. Traveling through Jericho, the crowds were so thick that it was hard to get close even to see Jesus. A short man named Zacchaeus 
even climbed a sycamore tree to see over the crowd. Jesus visited Zacchaeus and taught him and the other people with him a parable because they thought he was going to become their king soon. In the story, a nobleman gave ten pounds, a type of money, to ten servants. He told them to use the money productively until he returned. This pictured how Jesus would go away after he sacrificed his life to pay for all sin and return in the future to establish the kingdom of God. And it shows what God requires of his servants in order to qualify for the kingdom. With the nobleman gone, one servant used his pound to earn ten pounds. Another servant used his pound to earn five pounds. But another servant did nothing with his pound. When the nobleman returned, he rewarded each servant according to how much he had done with what he had been given. Those who carried out the master's wishes were given positions of rulership. But the servant who produced nothing and just gave back to the nobleman the same pound he had been given lost his opportunity for rulership and was slain before the master. The lesson is that in order to qualify for rulership in the kingdom of God, you must use God's spirit to grow in character and take advantage of the opportunities he gives you to grow and develop. It was now time to approach Jerusalem for the spring holy days and to fulfill the final prophecies about the Savior's first coming. Jesus and his disciples traveled from Jericho to Bethany, the town on the Mount of Olives just two miles from Jerusalem, where he had resurrected Lazarus a few weeks ago. The whole area was full of Jewish travelers who were visiting the area to keep the holy days. Passover was only six days away. The Jewish leaders had commanded that if anyone saw Jesus of Nazareth among the crowds, that person must tell the authorities so that they could arrest him. Talking together in the temple, they wondered if Jesus would keep the holy days in Jerusalem or whether he would stay away to try and save his life. They also discussed whether it would be possible to kill Lazarus. The fact that he was alive convinced many people that Jesus was a prophet of God. They would not need to go far to confront Jesus since he was coming to them. Jesus would keep his final Passover in Jerusalem, the city where the Jewish leaders lived and where they held the most power. It was April, A.D. 31. Millions of people were now in Jerusalem for the spring holy days. As Jesus walked with the disciples down the Mount of Olives on the crowded road toward the city, he told two of his disciples to travel ahead. God the Father had revealed to him that there was a donkey that had never been ridden, tied up with a tame donkey in a nearby village. He told the men to fetch it for him to ride. Why did Jesus ride a donkey? Donkeys were normally used to carry people and other burdens. 
Unbroken donkeys were often tied to tame donkeys, so they behaved better. Horses were uncommon, and they were usually used for war. Riding a donkey was more dignified than walking, and donkeys symbolized peace rather than war. One of Jesus' ancestors, King Solomon, rode a mule when he was crowned to king. God worked a miracle, not only to show Christ where the donkey was, but also to make the owners of it happy to lend it. Perhaps they were interested in or even supportive of Jesus. The disciples humbly showed Jesus honor by taking off some of their own outer garments and placing them on the unbroken donkey to make his ride more comfortable. As Jesus continued through the crowds of people on the road to Jerusalem, they spread their clothes along the roadside like tapestries and palm branches to decorate it in honor of him. Thousands of people watched, and Jesus' disciples rejoiced and praised God for all the miracles and teachings they had witnessed with him over the past three and a half years. Before this time, Jesus had often chosen to avoid public attention. Now, though his ministry was almost over, it was time to fulfill another prophecy and enter Jerusalem as the Savior. Many of those rejoicing at Jesus' triumphant entry into the city probably still believed he would now take control of the Jewish nation and use his teachings and his miracles to free it from the Roman Empire and make it a great nation. They still did not understand that the Messiah would come first to die for everyone's sins and then would return long after their lifetimes to take control of not just the government in Judea, but all the governments in the world. After spending the night just outside the city, Jesus returned to Jerusalem the next day and entered the temple. A few years before, he had driven out animals and expelled people who were running businesses in the temple. But they had soon returned and continued what they had been doing. Seeing so many buyers and sellers Animals and goods in the temple again upset Jesus. God had commanded that his temple be a holy place where people would focus on praying and sacrificing to him. It was not to be treated like a regular street or marketplace. For the second time, Jesus entered the temple, drove out the animals, and overthrew the tables and chairs of the people running businesses there. The Jewish leaders were infuriated. Jesus had entered Jerusalem like a king, and now he had disrupted the businesses in the temple for the second time. Businesses that they had allowed to operate. Groups of leaders met together to discuss how they could turn the people away from Jesus and how they might be able to kill him. Jesus knew about their plots to kill him, but he remained in Jerusalem finishing his ministry by teaching the people and his disciples. He gave a parable of a seed that falls to the ground and grows into a plant 
to illustrate how he would die, be buried, and resurrected. He again taught that those who truly want to follow him must be willing to sacrifice things they want in this life and perhaps even die for him in order to receive eternal life. This was not an easy time for Jesus. He knew he was about to be arrested, tortured, and killed. He did not want to suffer, but he yielded to his Father's will, carrying out their plan to save human beings from their sins. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story, find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church.